Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the tabernacle. Are you excited to be here? I'm excited, yeah. Uh, Welcome to those who are watching online or watching in Manistee or wherever you are. Uh, We're glad that you're either here live or that uh, uh, you're dialing in. Uh, This has been the first live audience for me since about March. And uh, I got to the butterflies just a little bit. It's like riding a bicycle, right? Should be okay? All right. This crowd here is going to have to help me out because there's not a lot of you. And that brings me uh, to this little observation. I was in uh, the Buckley Saturday night services last week and in the Manistee Sunday services. And now I'm here. And I just think that it's appropriate for me to make this observation. We are starting a new series called It Needs to Be Said. It Needs to Be Said. Now, we're not going to follow necessarily a book of the Bible. Everything will be scripture-based. But there's some things that have just been brought to our attention that needs to be said. And, and some of them will make their way into sermons, and some of them won't be in sermons, but I'll share them with you. And this is something that needs to be said. And I say this with love in my heart and joy and a big smile. Is there have been a lot of us who call the tabernacle their church home, that think this whole thing is ridiculous. It's a pandemic. Oh, that's stupid. Masks. Oh, what do they know, right? And it's all over social media. And when I run into you at the ice cream shop or around town or behind masks, you know, in a store. And by and large, it seems to be a lot of us. However, this is the second weekend that church services have been opened. Where are you? It needs to be said, right? So that's no pressure by any means. Uh, We have people here and at both campuses that uh, are going to come and wear a mask, and some people aren't, and that's okay. We've taken a lot of precautions. You've seen a lot of those insider emails and stuff we're putting on social media. And we also know that some people can't and shouldn't because they're high risk. And so this service is a gift for you, and we'll continue to put those online. But I just thought as an example of things that need to be said, I'd just throw that out there. And if that was a call out, well, just pray about it, and then we'll see you next weekend. But um, besides that, uh, I, I wanted to share something my family and I got to do uh, this week, is, is, is we dared to run the blockade and get out of state right? There was no blockade, by the way. It's not that bad. Uh, But we went down to Indiana to spend some time with my folks we haven't seen in a long time and and got to spend the week with them. And and I treasure these moments. My parents are both retired and they're getting older. And after a lifetime of ministry, there's still a lot that I can learn from them. And uh, I had some time with my dad. He was working on a puzzle, like a 5,000 piece puzzle. Quarantine, he's been bored. But um, as he's working on the puzzle, I'm asking him questions. Now, there's a point to this, so just go with me here for a second. Uh, my father first went to the mission field in 1966. He was newly married, a young pastor, and uh, he was serving in Ohio, and he was invited to go on a missions trip to Jamaica. And he was telling me these stories, and of course, I've got the laptop open, and I'm doing sermon prep, but you know, I paused for a second just to listen to what Uh, my father was sharing. As it turns out, on the way home from his first ever missions trip to Jamaica, they'd had a great time of ministry. He fell in love with the Caribbean. He fell in love with those people. And he's kind of dreaming about that. And then the icing on the cake is on the way home. My father actually met Billy Graham. Billy Graham was in baggage claim. You couldn't miss him. 
uh, they'd heard they'd been on the same flight. And so he and, and the guys with him, uh, they actually went and met Billy Graham. And Billy Graham was super interested in what they're doing. And, and it, it was just, it was really meaningful, right? And so then two years later, I believe it was March or April, my dad said he saw something in their denominational communication that said that there was a need for a Bible school teacher in Jamaica. My mom and dad prayed about it, felt God was prompting them or calling them to to apply for that position. And wouldn't you know it, March of 68 until October, they were in Jamaica that fast. Smooth sailing. Passports, visas, storage, the application process, the training. He said, it was, it was just like the trip. It, it was so smooth, everything about it. It was like it was meant to be. It was meant to be, right? And my parents served there uh, for five years and then took a pastorate in Ohio. Their story's going someplace, I promise. Then he said what was interesting is in right, right around 1975, they felt the call back to the mission field. And this time it was to Haiti. It was to Haiti. And he said their experience going to Haiti was totally different. It wasn't smooth sailing at all. In fact, he said going to Jamaica was like going up to an automated door and it just walked right through. Going to Haiti, it's like doors kept slamming shut all the time. Finally, they got all of their stuff packed. They got their kids packed. I'm, you know, a part of this deal. There was four kids at the time. They packed all of our earthly belongings that we were going to take into these barrels. And as we're waiting for the visa, they had to vacate their home in Ohio, and they went over to Indiana, and it was in Indiana that they had the worst rains they'd ever had. And there was flooding in their storage facility, and all of their drums were filled with water. They had to unpack everything and repack everything. I'm like, what's the big deal? My wife packs and repacks for any trip that we take, right? Or maybe that's me, I'm not sure. Everything in all of those storage drums had to be re-itemized to make it through customs. It was a painstaking process. Then as, you know, the visas didn't come in, and, and so they were living in a borrowed home that hadn't been lived in for years in the coldest winter in Indiana in decades. Blizzard, and, and they don't know how to move snow like we do, right? The whole place was shut down for weeks. My mom still talks about the slow-moving mice in that house because they were cold, right? But still, it's like, yeah, God, you've called us to this. This is the ministry. This is where we're going. And then my little brother got really, really, really sick, so sick they weren't sure they could go. Finally, the time came for them to go uh, to Haiti, and they were actually traveling by way of Jamaica, which was cool because they could spend some time catching up with some old people there. While they were there, my brother got deathly ill. In fact, one of my earliest memories is my little brother having a convulsion on my parents' bed and shaking the whole bed. I still have PTSD from that. And then running out of the house, taking him to a hospital. But there was fear because at the time, uh, uh, the only doctors in Cuba or in, in Jamaica were Cubans. And that was the middle of the Cold War. And what kind of care are we going to get? Finally, after eight days in Haiti, he got out of the woods and, and they took a taxi to the airport. And the only taxi they could get, it was an open vehicle, no top. And their 
bags were lashed to the fenders going across busy Kingston, Jamaica. And my father said to me that this was the thought that went to, through his head. Is this the road to Haiti? And what he was pointing out is both of them were God's callings. Both of those ended up being ministries that were used by God, but one was easy. One was not. And in fact, if you compared the five years of ministry my parents had in Jamaica to the seven years of ministry in Haiti, Haiti was much more difficult. And I won't go into all the details. What does it have to do with what needs to be said here? Well, when we go through chaotic times, and all of us have, and all of us are right now, whether they're personal or as a state or as a church or as a nation, as a world, when we go through chaotic times, stressful times, hard times, troubled times, there's something that comes out of our mouth that isn't quite right and it's not quite biblical. And I've heard it around the tabernacle. In fact, way back in the day, I might have even said it, but I don't believe it because I don't think it's right. And the thing we love to say to one another when we're experiencing difficult times, whether it's in family or at school or at job, health, whatever, is we love to say to one another, God won't give you more than you can handle. Have you ever heard that? Just raise your hand. Have you ever said that? Just raise your hand. Yeah, God won't give you more than you can handle. And we take some comfort in that. It's like, well, Jim and Jeanette, you know, God called you here and the kids are sick and there's slow mice and it's freezing and, and you're risking your life driving a car. But you know what? God won't give you more than you can handle. Right? You're facing cancer. You're facing serious health issues. Well, God won't give you more than you can handle. Finances fell out of everything. You're, you're between jobs for the fourth time this year. Well, God won't give you more than you can handle is what we tend to say. But is that right? Is that biblical? I don't think so. It needs to be said that we need to ditch that from our vocabulary. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn to 2 Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, it's another uh, epistle written by Paul. There's just two verses that I want to focus on this weekend. And there's a lot packed in here, and Paul is sharing from his own experience. He's writing to the Corinthian church after his second or third missionary journey. And he says something interesting, and it's packed into these two verses and as I'm reading these verses, I want us to think, you know, with our brains, listen with our hearts and souls, what God is telling us by his spirit. Starting in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. This is God's word. Now, Paul goes on in the letter to make the points that he wanted to make to the Corinthian church, but Right in there is all of the essence of the message for this weekend. 
Paul's talking about an experience we believe he had in Ephesus. We know some of the details. We don't know all of the details. You know, we've said before, wherever Paul went in his missionary journeys, he either started a revival or a riot, right? Well, this was a place where he started both. He spent up to two years there, planning a church there, preaching and teaching and raising up disciples, loving God, loving people, making disciples. But at the end of his time, he was actually run out of town. He was run out of town because too many people were becoming Christians. Too many people were exchanging their idols for the one true God. And in fact, there was an idol maker that was the ringleader of all the trouble against Paul. And we don't know all of the specifics. We know that was the base of it. But if we look back at verse 8 here, it says, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced. Have you ever been afflicted? Have you ever felt afflicted? Have you ever felt like you couldn't take another hit, either from people or from loved ones or people that used to be loved ones? Or maybe you feel like you're under attack by Satan himself. Many of us have spent a lot of times feeling afflicted here in northern Michigan because our freedom, you know, the mask, the pandemic, is it real, is it not real? You know, I was asking the band uh, before the service, what are some things that you think need to be said? And, and it was, they were quite funny. Some of them I can share, some of them I can't. The summary is everyone calm down, right? Everyone calm down. Uh, another person very wisely said, no, you don't know everything and neither do we, nobody does except God right? I'm not sure that what we're experiencing is affliction, but if you've been around for a minute, I'm sure we can identify with some sort of affliction. He says, we were so utterly burdened, burdened. Maybe you came this weekend with a heavy load. Maybe you're watching or listening and there's something that's burdening you. Maybe it's a mess that you made. Maybe it's a mess that someone else Made. Maybe it's something that's gone on for years. Paul understood that. He said, back in Asia, I was afflicted, I was burdened. And then he goes, that we despaired of life itself. Have you ever despaired of life? All is lost. There is no hope. Have you ever been in that place of nobody loves me, everybody hates me, I guess I'll go eat worms? Afflicted, burdened, despaired. You get the picture here that Paul's got a little bit more than he can handle. Would you agree? He's saying, back there, it was more than I could handle. Maybe you heard about it. But because there's no wasted words in Scripture, he gives us a little clue. The last part of verse 9 He said, it was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Here's my point. Here's the point. This is what needs to be said. God will not give you more than he can handle. God will not give you more than he can handle. You see, when we say things, and I, you know, I know, well, John, you're splitting hairs. No, I'm not. 
Because when we say things like, God won't give you more than you can handle, the emphasis is on you and your strength and your ability and your talent and your ability to figure it out, your ability to get out of a tight spot. Have you ever been in a tight spot and there was no way out and then God showed up? God will not give you more than he can handle. You see, the the phrase that I'm trying to get us away from is rooted in an idea that I still need to work really, really hard in order to save me. And that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. God is not a last resort when things are in chaos. God's not a last resort when I'm afflicted, burdened, in despair. He should be the first resort. He's the only resort. I can't save you. The tabernacle can't save you. You can't save you. But God can. God can. God will not give you more than he can handle. And sometimes God allows things into our lives. Now, just to geek out theologically here just for a second, God can do no evil, right? You know, there's always some person that says, well, if God can do anything, why can't he sin? And the answer to that is, why would you want him to? Why would you want something that is perfectly holy and just and merciful and loving and good? Why would you want that thing to ever sin? God cannot go against his character, against his nature. But God in his wisdom will allow trials. He will allow afflictions and burdens. He will allow us to get to a point of despair. Not because he's a sadist. Not because he's mean, but just what Paul says, to teach us something. He allows it to teach us something. You guys, we have an enemy that wants to afflict you. We have an enemy that wants to burden you. We've said it time and time again, even a couple weeks ago when we were talking about remember who the real enemy is, remember to fight the right fight, is that, is that there is an enemy in this world that, that is behind all of the afflictions and all of the burdens and all of the things that cause despair. We don't struggle against flesh and blood, we struggle against that enemy, right? And it's only by God's mercy that he's held at bay. You think things are bad now? <laughs> Oh dear. Which by the way, this is a sermon coming up in a couple of weeks when we, you know, we'll finally address the whole end times thing. You think things are bad now? We ain't seen nothing yet. Because God in his mercy is holding it back. He's holding back the enemy. The enemy can do nothing without permission. And that's hard for some of us to understand. But God will allow some things to get through to teach us something. And none of it is more than he can handle. So then the question becomes, why? Why does God do this? Is God mean? Is God, uh, uh, you know, is he like playing with us? You know, I know many people that one of the reasons they don't become Christians is because they want a God who prevents all suffering from ever happening. They want to take man's free will away and stop the speeding car, stop the crash train, prevent the plane crash, the tsunami, etc., But that goes against God's purposes. You see, the purpose of all this is not you. The purpose of all this, this existence, this universe, is not me. The point of all of this book, it's really not about us. It's about God. Do you believe that? It's about God. 
And God has purposes sometimes that we don't understand. But as best I can tell, I've got three, three main reasons God will not give you more than he can handle. Here's the first one. And Paul says it right there in verse 9. To build my faith in God. To build my faith in God. Right? This is the only way you and I are saved. This is the only activity that we participate in in the gospel. Not good works. Good works come as a result of faith. But faith is the way I receive God's grace and am saved. All right? We just spent uh, all of quarantine and, and, and the whole book of Ephesians through the resurrection series talking about the gospel and all of the things that it resurrects in us. And it all comes back to faith, even in the Old Testament. How was, how was Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joseph and, and, and uh, um, all of the characters, how were they justified? Scripture says they were justified by faith. God wants to build faith in us. To build faith in you. And so he says right there to teach us not to rely on ourselves but on God. God will not give you more than he can handle to build my faith in God. Here's an example is uh, um, David. David, King David. Most of us remember him as King David, a man after God's own heart. You with me? You know what I'm talking about, David. That David, not the David you know, the the Old Testament David, right? Uh, David who uh, uh, killed the giant with a sling, right? We also know that even though he's a man after God's own heart and he was a war hero and he was the greatest king of Israel before Jesus, right? That, you know, he wasn't perfect. And, and he also had that little, you know, that affair and then the cover up with murder and so forth and so on. If you read the story of David's life, there was a lot of ups and downs in his life. And so I started thinking, where did that come from? In fact, I read the entire uh, first and second Samuel, I just wanted to read David's life story again. Part of David's life that we forget is at one point he was just a little old shepherd boy. The youngest of all his brothers given the crappiest job in the house. They got to go off and serve the king and where's David? David's watching the livestock out in the fields. And if you know the story, David actually had to fight wild animals. In fact, when he tried to argue with Saul, or when he argued with Saul successfully to allow him to face Goliath, what did he say? God helped me defeat the lion and the bear. So what is this man, this uncircumcised Philistine? He helped me before, he'll help me again. God had allowed those attacks on the livestock to do what? To build David's faith. He wasn't, you know, some kid just playing video games, not having his faith built at all. My apologies to all the gamers. He'd actually been in real circumstances, and I wonder if each attack, each experience got worse and worse and worse until this great moment where he faces a giant and there's a great victory for Israel. He can't do that without great faith. God allowed things to happen in his life to build his faith, and it didn't end there. We forget this part about the story of David's life. David was still a shepherd when he was anointed by the prophet Samuel in a private ceremony. You're going to be the king. You're going to be the king. Okay, you poured some oil on my head and I'm going to be the king. You're, you're, you know, you're the prophet of God. Okay. And then he went and fought the giant. Do you know David didn't become the king for years? In fact, he was compelled by his faith to serve Saul, who was an evil king, and trying to kill him. 
David spent years on the lamb. He spent years in hiding. He had multiple opportunities to kill Saul and didn't do it because Saul was God's anointed. David was patient. He had faith in God, the God who told Samuel to anoint him as the next king, but he didn't put the cart before the horse. Why? Because he'd had his faith built. Why is this important? Many times we face trials. You know, I see this with new Christians or even supposedly mature Christians. We have trials, we have afflictions, burdens, despair. And instead of driving us to trust and place more faith in God, we run away. Why is this happening? I thought I signed up for rainbows and unicorns. Why am I going through this hard time? Why am I going through this difficulty? Why doesn't everybody like me? A question I've asked a thousand times since becoming a lead pastor. Did I say that out loud? Sorry, let's keep going. God was able to handle all of those things and build great faith in David. Here's the second reason. I think God will not give you more than he can handle. It's to teach me about God. To teach me about God. To teach me about his character. You know, the, I think it's the Westminster Confession. We're not hardcore reformed here, but if any of you grew up with the apostles' creeds and the different creeds, the Westminster Confession, it asks this question, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? What's the purpose to all of this? And those theologians got together and it said, it's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's not to glorify me and enjoy my life for the few short years I have on this earth. If I'm going to spend eternity with God, I want to know about God and about his character. That's part of the faith building that I learn. What types of things, when I go through hard times, if my faith remains strong, even in the middle of pandemic, what can I learn? That God is good. That God is just. You know what? It needs to be said that God is sovereign still. He's in control and he never stopped being in control. He's on his throne. So sometimes God allows more than I can handle to teach me more about him. One of the hardest Old Testament stories to read is the story of Job. The story of Job. Many of you have read that. Some of you haven't. It's, it's quite a long book. It's a wisdom book, but I believe it was a true story. And there's this righteous man named Job, and God is pleased with this man, but apparently up in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly places, Satan showed up one day when the angels have to do their check-in with God, and he started talking smack about Job. God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Satan's reply was the only reason Job is faithful is because you've blessed him. Job had a lot of children. Job had a lot of money. Job had a good life. He was living the American dream all the way back in Ur. Come on, people. And God said to Satan, you can do whatever you want to him. Just don't touch a hair on his head. And in one day, messengers arrived one at a time, but all in the same period saying, you've lost everything you have. You've lost all of your homes. You've lost to death 
all of your servants and all of your children were killed. Everything. Now, how is that fair? Tabernacle, I got news for you. Fairness ended in the Garden of Eden. And if you and I still live with this idea of it's not fair, you're going to be disappointed with life. Fairness ended in the Garden of Eden. Job refused to curse God and die, even though his wife was saying, obviously God has left you, curse God and die, but he wouldn't. He remained faithful. So much so that Satan came to God again in the story and, 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 and he says, oh, he's only faithful to you because you won't let me touch him. And he says, okay, you can touch him, but you can't kill him. You know the story, some of you. So God allowed Satan to give Job more than he could handle. Not only did he lose all of his earthly possessions, all of his buildings and homes, all of his servants, all of his children, his body was afflicted with disease. He was covered in sores, so much so that you couldn't even touch him. And he's scraping the boils off of his skin. And his wife and his friends are saying, curse God and die. And I've read through the story of Job many times. And there comes a point where even Job starts to ask why. Because it's more than any of us have ever handled. And there's this beautiful part right at the end where God finally speaks to Job. And essentially he says to him, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I created everything? What do you know about my purposes, my plan? In fact, he goes on for an entire chapter asking him over a hundred questions that no human being can answer, even to this day, not even Stephen Hawking. And at the end, Job says this amazing testimony. He said, before I knew about you, but now I have heard you and I repent in dust and ashes. God was teaching Job about him. And through his experience, he's teaching us about him. Not that he's sadistic, not that he's mean. He's teaching us that he won't give us more than he can handle. And at the end of the story, if you know, God gave back to Job everything that he'd lost. More children, more homes, more livestock. You know, in 2 Corinthians 12, there's a passage we love to quote. We love to say to one another that, that moment where, where it says, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Have you heard that before? God's grace is sufficient for me because when I'm weak, that's when you know, we see his power. But you know what? We forget the first part of that passage. Paul is talking again and he says that there was given to Paul a thorn in his flesh so that he wouldn't become conceited. There was another affliction Another burden. I don't like literal thorns, let alone figurative thorns. And Paul says he was afflicted by a thorn that was a messenger of Satan that God allowed so that Paul wouldn't get a big head. 
Because Paul was kind of a big deal. We need to keep this guy low. Let him be afflicted. Does that seem fair? Fair is gone. But to teach Paul more about God, he was given a thorn to keep him low, to keep him humble, to teach Paul and me and us about God. Last but not least, why does God give us more than he can handle? It's simply to bring glory to God. To bring glory to God. You know, I'll confess to you, I probably don't preach enough about the glory of God. But I think I probably should and I probably will. To go back to that confession thing, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To glorify God. Would you just say to glorify God? Say to glorify God. Good. That's your purpose, period. And you do that by loving God with all you have, by loving people as you love yourself, by making disciples. But the purpose is to bring glory to God. That's why we exist. God didn't create you because he was lonely. The Father had the Son and the Spirit. The Spirit had the Father and the Son. The Son had the Father and the... He was covered. He didn't make us because he needed friends. Our point, our purpose is to glorify God. And when we know about him and our faith is in him, we enjoy him forever. So part of the point of affliction and burdens is how will I handle it? Now, I'm, I'm not trying to say, hey, we should all be Stoics. And I don't want to go back to that you know, Christian ghetto, how you doing today? Fine. Remember that? The higher the pitch, the more you're lying. Fine. I'm fine. No, don't lie. But how we handle loss, how we handle death, how we handle despair, we can either bring glory to God or lead people to doubt God. We can either learn about the character of God or we can have our own character exposed. We can have our faith built in God or we can think that, you know, if I white knuckle it enough, maybe I can handle it. In 1 Corinthians 10, it says that there's no temptation that has seized you except that which is common to man. And that God will always provide a way out. Summary, paraphrase that. There's no temptation that you and I will face that is so great that there's not an out for it, that there's not a way of escape. You know, there's times when, when I felt tempted to sin and I just felt like I couldn't help myself. Well, that was the way I was raised. Well, these are the wounds from my childhood. Well, it's just a bad habit or whatever. God will always provide a way out. And it, sometimes it's not the easy way out. In fact, the hardest things are usually the best course of action. To go back to what my parents experienced. Just because a door is closed doesn't mean it's not God's will. Just because it's not smooth sailing doesn't mean it's beyond God's control. The best example I can think of were the three Hebrew boys who were imprisoned in Babylon. And when everyone was ordered 
face down to kneel before the idols. Three boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused. Is that just a kid's story? That's a real question. Is that just a children's book? That's a real story of three Hebrew boys whose faith was in God, who understood enough about the character of God when they were put in that position. Either kneel before this false idol or you will be thrown into a furnace of fire. They refused to bow the knee. Friends, that time is coming. If not in our lifetime, end times will certainly come sooner or later. So if you're watching this in 2050, maybe you're in the tribulation, this is for you. It's nothing new. 4,000 years ago, those boys faced that choice and they refused. When confronted by the king, worship this idol or be thrown into the fiery furnace. Do you remember their answer? Our God can save us. Our God will save us. But even if he does not, we will never worship this idol. Think about that. What do you mean, even if he does not? They had just enough faith to face the fire. They didn't know that they were going to be thrown in and God was going to preserve them, right? And that they were going to live and it was going to be an amazing miracle that would be recorded for us to learn about God's character. But they didn't know. They said, he can, he will, but even if he doesn't. Glory. Glory to God. And as it turns out, it wasn't more than God could handle. And there were other martyrs that weren't saved from the fire. They weren't saved from the lions. They weren't saved from the arrows. They weren't saved from the affliction, the burden, and the despair. But make no mistake, we can take hope from this statement. God will not give you more than he can handle. But there's an attitude shift. There's an adjustment. It's not about my ability. It's about his ability. It's not about what I can see. It's about his sovereignty. It's not about even how much faith I have. It's whose faith I have it in. I place it in God. So the band's going to come, and we're going to sing. Would you bow your heads with me? I don't know every story of every person that watches or listens or who joins us live in a weekend service. I don't know what every child's going through or every student, every married person, single, young or old. But if you haven't felt afflicted, burdened, or despaired, or you're not in that place, chances are you will be. God's asking us to trust in him and not to rely on ourselves. Not to rely on our Facebook posts. Not to rely on our vote. Not to rely on our government. Not to rely on how much we've stored up. Our own intelligence, our own abilities. 
God, would you help us to trust in you? Would you help us to believe your word? Would you help us to believe what you say about yourself? God, to put a filter on our mouths when we say silly things like you won't give us more than we can handle. Thank you, God, that you're a God that won't give more than you can handle. God, I pray if there's anyone here that's never trusted you with his or her life, that they would choose to do that, that they would become a Christian and find the way of peace, find the way of hope, find the resurrected life that you promise, a life everlasting. God, most of all, we thank you for Jesus who makes this possible. It's in him we put our faith. It's in in him that we trust. It's his name that we want to bring glory to. God, I ask all of this in his name, Jesus. And if you agree, church, say amen.